So uh, let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started in Revelation 19. Father, we thank you for our morning um, this Tuesday. We thank you, O oh God, that, uh, that the promise still stands as the sun rises, that your, that your own mercies are new for us every day. Lord, we pray that we would um, have hearts to receive those mercies, Father, that you would so frame our lives that we live by mercy. Um, oh God, that uh, you would give us the gratitude that, that Thursday points to in a deeper way as, as Paul preached upon Sunday, Father, um, in a way that sees our whole lives as a response to your goodness to us. We pray that that would happen for us this morning as we look at the party that is um, explicit in Revelation 19. Father, we pray that you would give us joy, um, Lord, that you, would, uh, that you would whet our appetite for what lies ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, when our oldest son was in kindergarten at the Covenant School, John Reynolds his name, he's nine now, third grade. Um, Jada went to pick him up one afternoon, my wife, and she got there and the teacher said, look, you should have told us it was his birthday today. We would have been a lot more prepared and done even a better job celebrating him. And it, it turns out that in chapel, of all places, that morning in chapel, one of the teachers said, hey, is it anyone's birthday today? And of course, he raised his hand and said, absolutely, it's my birthday. And all the kids erupted with clapping, and uh, they sang to him in the chapel, there in the presence of God. And, um, and the teacher improvised a little bit, and basically the whole day she kind, of, she kind of made him the king, right? Pats on the back, they didn't do as much schoolwork, everyone was celebrating, and the only problem was he was about six months and some change off. You know, his birthday's in April. And so Jada has to like receive this news and she goes in and, um, and you know, she has to do the embarrassing thing, which is to confess that it is in fact not his birthday. And the teacher kind of nervously laughed it off and we told her we'd handle it at home. So he gets home that day and, you know, he's our first. So we probably overparented him a little bit and made him sleep outside a couple nights as a consequence, you know, um, easy on him. Um, one of my friends, though, made a memorable comment that has stuck with me. Um, he said, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, he lied. He lied. Maybe he was confused. Probably not. He lied. But he said, if you're going to lie, you should at least make sure that everybody gets a party out of it. <laughs> you know? Now, I'm not sure that that is sound biblical advice, uh, but he saw an opportunity to have a party, and he threw his hand up, and he took it. And, um, uh, and, and, that was, and he got another party later that year in April when his real birthday was, so he got two parties out of it. Uh, my guess is this morning that if you think back to some of your fondest memories in life, that, that those memories would involve or incorporate a celebration of some sort. Um, a wedding, uh, a birth of a new child, um, a job promotion, vacation, even just some, uh, a great night out with some of your closest friends. Now, you'll notice that every culture, no matter how poor the culture is or how painful the times, every culture knows how to celebrate. <clears throat> every culture knows how to throw a party. Because we intuitively recognize that life itself would not be complete or full without celebrations. Now, what does all this have to do with Revelation, especially Revelation 19? Revelation 19 is going to suggest this morning as we read that you were actually made for a party. That you were made for a feast. And that the greatest celebration that you've ever been invited to does not lie somewhere in your past. It lies still ahead of you. 
And it's this celebration to which all the other celebrations, if you could combine your greatest, most joyful moments into one great montage, they would provide only a taste. And for those of you who are sitting here this morning and thinking, you know what, my life has been primarily not a party at all. My life has been painful and disappointing. This celebration this morning, as with the suffering Christians to whom this book was written, John would have you know that this feast will serve as the vindication and the redemption of all your sorrow and all your suffering. A party is coming. There are two things I want you to see this morning as we read. I want you to notice how the party begins. And secondly, I want you to see where the party leads. Let's read together Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. John writes, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Where are we in the book of Revelation? Well, let me just give you a quick overview and recap just to kind of coordinate everything this morning. We're coming to the end, and um, I know that some of us have to miss some mornings, and maybe this is even your first time. I just want to... It's a, it's a big book. It's a complicated book. Um, I know that we have not been able to go as deep into everything and to answer all of your questions as we've moved through it. What we've hoped, I think, is that in the end, this book will be less intimidating for you. And you will find in it not a place that you are afraid to go to get encouragement and nourishment, but a place of great blessing in your life. Let me, let me recap just for a moment and give you the landscape overview of where we've been. In the first few chapters of the book, we are given the vision of God's beauty and God's supremacy that culminates in the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Lamb who has been slain and the risen conqueror. And we learn there in the first few chapters that He is the only worthy one. He is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll, the will of God, with its seven seals. Those seals are opened. The will of God um, is unleashed upon 
the world, a world that lives in rebellion against him, a world that is cursed. And so you have all this pain and suffering, and we find there that those who are able to stand and those who are able to overcome and to conquer in the midst of a fallen world are only those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those who have made God himself their refuge. Then we move forward and we have this, this great cosmic battle between good and evil. You'll remember because it's kind of the, it's where the, you know, it's where the excitement really comes into play, right? You have the dragon and you have the two beasts of the apocalypse and the great prostitute. And what we see through all of this is that though God is enthroned, that evil is still at work in our world. It is present. It is real. It is resilient. It is powerful. And evil, when it does its best work, always takes on the characteristics of God himself, the Trinitarian God, as seen in the number 666. Not 777, but 666, which means that evil always falls short of what God actually promises. And now where we are this morning in Revelation 19 is we are coming to sort of the end of the vision itself. And we are beginning to get glimpses of the revelation of the ultimate source of Christian hope. And in the next few chapters, God is going to give us, John is going to provide for us, recording these in his own words, the vision that should animate the long journey of faithfulness to which the rest of the book speaks. You're going to find out next week there's still a great battle left. It's Revelation 20. But what in fact saturates these final chapters is the beauty and the reward and the life that comes from being people who live in union with God. So that's the recap. Two things I want you to see this morning from Revelation 19. Number one, I want you to see where how the celebration begins, and number two, I want you to see where it actually leads. First, where does the celebration begin? Well, look with me again at verses one through three there in your handout. John says, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his what? What does it say? His judgments are true and just. For he is what? Judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. What do you think the the multitude is celebrating here? (laughs) What, What is all of heaven celebrating? What does John see them celebrating here at the beginning of 19? They are celebrating the judgment of God. The wedding feast of the Lamb actually begins with judgment, with the condemnation of the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth and who has murdered the servants of Jesus Christ. And so who is the great prostitute? I wasn't here last week, so I'm not sure how much um, you guys talked about this. But the great prostitute is identified in the previous chapter in chapter 18. And her name there is given to us as Babylon. Now, Babylon is an ancient city that kind of stood for, symbolized all that was wrong in a city. It was, uh, it was a city that lived in opposition to God, and Babylon could be a stand-in for any city. In fact, in this text, it very much is. Babylon is a stand-in for Rome. For any city that's adorned with power and wealth, for any city that feels itself to be invincible, a political empire that promises to be the true lord over all of human activity. You'll notice that the name Babylon sounds an awful lot like the name Babel, 
If you remember that story in your Bible in Genesis 11, the name comes from the same place. What was Babel? Well, it was the first attempt to build a city that would go all the way up to heaven to take the place in the sense to God, of God. And what did God do to it? He laid it to ruin. Because Babel really symbolized what is the sin underneath every other sin. The sin underneath every other sin is pride and self-sufficiency. And God lays Babel to ruin. And what he does here in Revelation 20, excuse me, 19, is he says, I'm going to do it once again. In the same way that I laid Babel to ruin, I want you to see that I'm going to lay every city opposed to me, every empire opposed to me, to, to ruin. And I want you to see the imagery, this is really powerful, of how grave the ending is for Babylon. It says, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. What does that mean? It means that it, it doesn't stop. <laughs> it means that the end for her is eternal. That her destruction is perpetual. That she, uh, she resides forever and ever under condemnation that has no end. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and drink that in. And I want you to consider that that is a strange way to begin a party, is it not? It is a strange way to begin a party. Especially a party that if you peek ahead just a few verses later, is ultimately a celebration of romance and love. So how in the world does that work? How is it that a party moves so effortlessly between a, a city who is burning without end to a marriage feast? What I want you to see is that the vision itself is asking us to hold together what we often think belongs so far apart in our own imagination. And that is the reality of judgment and the reality of love. And in heaven, as the vision suggests, judgment and love are not opposite ends of a split personality within the character of God. It's not, an, it's, it's not as if there are really two gods. There is one God who is judgmental and angry and capricious and, you know, whatever else. The, 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 I guess it's the, is it the Jekyll or the Hyde? The Jekyll, right? Which is which? Jekyll's the mean one, right? Yeah, the, yeah not Mr. Hyde, but the Jekyll. And then the other God is the one of mercy and kindness and generosity, the Hyde. You know, um, most of us, most of us have a hard time keeping those things together. And so we would say, look, I hope, you get the, I hope you get this particular God. And some of that comes from our childhood. Some of us had fathers who would come home at night, and we didn't know which one we were going to get. Uh, the dad of unjustified anger or the dad of generosity and love and kindness. And they were Jekyll and Hyde, split personalities. For other of us, we just live in a culture that has a hard time reconciling the idea of judgment and love. Because we would say if, true, if love is true, love finds a way to be tolerant. And love finds a way to be wide and accepting and non-judgmental if it is to be called love at all. In fact, this is so embedded in our culture today. If you'll listen carefully, here, here are the two orthodox, long-standing, historic Christian doctrines that are under the microscope in the West today. One is the orthodox historic understanding of human sexuality. The other is the orthodox historic understanding of hell. And the question from both is the same. How could a loving God not extend his arms 
and accept everyone. So I just want you to understand from the perspective of the gospel this morning how it is that a party could involve both a burning city and a wedding feast. And I want to try to do that this morning with a real live example that I think will hit home and that will clarify for you what I want you to see in Revelation 19. I have a friend a few years ago who confessed to me and some other close friends, guy friends of his, a personal struggle that he had with pornography. Now at the time it was a hidden struggle. We didn't know about it. His wife certainly didn't know about it. And the advice we gave to him was, you need to go and tell your wife. You know, go and be honest with her. Go and confess it to her. And we promise, our commitment to you is that we will help you in the daily battle itself. And so my friend cleared his schedule. Um, one night, he asked his wife to clear her. She didn't know what they were going to talk about, but it seemed a little bit irregular. <laughs> and uh, um, they had plenty of time uh, to, to converse about the issue itself. The reality is he, he confessed it to her. And as you can imagine, she was absolutely heartbroken. She was crushed. Tearfully, she said she was willing to forgive him. She said that she loved him. And she said that she was willing to help him in any way that she could. But what our friend reported back to us was this. When I saw how much pornography had hurt my wife, when I saw in her eyes how much it had crushed her and polluted our marriage, I wanted it gone forever. Excised, destroyed, out of my life. And do you know what we did when he said that to us? We celebrated. We celebrated his judgment on what had corrupted the sanctity of his marriage. In the gospel, that is good judgment. It is, as John says in verse 2, the vengeance that falls on what has corrupted the world that God so loves. What I need you to see as a Christian who has to go out there and represent the gospel and to do it well and faithfully is that in the gospel, judgment is not the opposite of love. Judgment, proper judgment, is always the expansion of love. It is the expansion of love. It is love doing whatever is necessary to enlarge the life of the beloved including the destruction of her false gods. Now, why is it? Why is it that this is so hard for us to reconcile? Let me give you two reasons this morning that I wrestle with personally, okay? One is a cultural one, and the other is personal. The cultural reason I think this is so hard to reconcile, at least one of the cultural reasons, is because we live relatively easy lives. Relatively easy lives. Most of us. When I say that, I don't mean that we all think we do comparatively, but I think relatively, we live free from the violence and oppression that has been endemic to most cultures throughout world history. And so most other people groups throughout the history of the world have not only had no problem with the fact that God himself is a judgmental God, they have needed a God of judgment. They have needed a God of vindication. Miroslav Volf, who is the chair of theology at Yale Divinity School, not a conservative school, a little bit more progressive than, than, than typically us, you know. Um, he, has, uh, he grew up in Eastern Europe. He grew up uh, around and with the atrocities of ethnic cleansing 
in a world in Yugoslavia um, that was perpetually at war. In one of his books, he says this. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, then that God would not be worthy of worship. He says, this will be unpopular in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the belief that human peace can be achieved by God's refusal to judge. He says, in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that belief in a non-judgmental God will inevitably die. And what he's saying is that this is really difficult for a people who have never lived in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent. But for those who have, the only recourse that they have to not picking up the sword themselves and being swept into an endless vortex of retaliation is the belief that God will one day vindicate injustice. Wolf is saying the only way that you can practice nonviolence with any integrity is to believe that God himself will take vengeance on those who have acted unjustly. One of the reasons I think that we have a hard time with this is that we live in relatively peace, peaceful and secure places, and sometimes that dulls us to the world's need of justice for someone to come in and enact justice. Now, the personal reason, and perhaps the harder one, what about people, right? Like, what about individuals? What about uh, friends and family members, people whom we deeply love, who have never, at least that we know of, reconciled with God during their lives? Am I supposed to believe that with Babylon, the smoke goes up forever and ever? This is incredibly difficult. And I want you to feel the weight of that. I think you should. Um, we should feel the weight of hard things like Job does. He sits in it, right? And feels the tension of wanting something to happen that we don't know how and when it will be resolved. Let me say two things about that. The first is this. Um, we need to be incredibly humble about who we think has reconciled with God and who is not. Does that make sense? We need to be incredibly humble about that. The Bible says over and over, especially in the Gospels, that the people who look the best on the inside are not the best on the, uh, the people, excuse me, the people that look the best on the outside are not the best on the inside. And the people that would seem to be beyond the scope of God's mercy are often the ones who get it the quickest, who get it first. And so one of the things that Jesus teaches us throughout the Gospel is that we need to practice epistemic humility, that God alone is the judge of the human heart, and we don't know. Nor is it our responsibility to assign someone uh, to eternal judgment at all. We, we are relieved from that responsibility. Now, second, where does that leave us? What well, leaves us where it's always left us. It leaves you this morning for those you love. And for, for every piece of your life, the only thing that you can do is lean into the character of God himself. His attributes. Who do you know God to be? Who does the Bible describe God to be? Does it not describe him as someone who is beyond merciful, who is beyond gracious, whose judgments are true and just? And can you see, can you see that in the end, that those things will come together in a way that maybe we don't understand now, but in a way that is, that is flourishing for the world, um, in a way that 
that, that describes a party at the very end in a way that, that, that suggests that at the end of time, we won't say, you know what, God was not merciful enough. But Revelation 19 in, instead describes uh, a reality in which, no, we will join the party and we will sing of his goodness and justice and mercy together. One of my favorite authors, her name is Marilyn Robinson, and in one of her novel, novels, she says this. She says, you know, I tell people there are certain attributes that our faith assigns to God. Omniscience, omnipotence, justice, and grace. And she writes, we human beings have such a slight acquaintance with power and knowledge, so little conception of justice, and so slight a capacity for grace, that the workings of these great attributes together is a mystery that we cannot hope to penetrate. Here's what I know this morning. I know that you cannot sit where you are and you cannot worship a God who is not just. You cannot worship a God whose judgments are not just and true. You cannot worship a God who will not avenge the blood of the innocent. But I also know that you cannot worship a God who is not merciful. You can't worship a God who refuses to forgive and to wash you and to clothe you in his beauty and in his righteousness. And men, the Bible says that in Jesus Christ, you have both. That you never have to choose. That his justice and mercy will come together in the end for the good of the world and for his glory. The party begins with condemnation. It begins with judgment because judgment is the proper expansion of God's love. Now, where does it lead? Well, it leads to a marriage feast. Look at me again at verses 6 through 9. John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now I want you to know that you're going to hear this language again in two chapters, the wedding language. The Bible will describe at the very end uh, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth as a marriage as a bride who is adorned for her husband. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is the great illustration, the great mystery that reveals the proper relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. As our Paul, Paul Goebel said from the pulpit on Sunday, when God indicts his people for sin, especially in the Old Testament and especially in the minor prophets, he does so in terms not of a violation of a code of conduct, but a violation of our union with him. He does it in terms of a marriage. Now, I was thinking about this morning, I couldn't think of anything else, but maybe you can. What other religious book do you know of in world religious history that includes a book within it or, or um, literature within it that is as graphic and as sensual and as bodily affirming as the Song of Songs? Have you read that book lately? Have you read it lately? You know, little Jewish children were not allowed to open that book until they came of age. And that's, a true, that's true. 
Uh, marriage kicks off the Bible, and marriage closes the Bible. And marriage is everywhere in between. And it's there so that we wouldn't miss this simple point, that the story that God is writing in history is fundamentally a love story. The story that God is telling in history is fundamentally a love story. All of life is courtship. In all of heaven, marriage. You might say that there are fundamentally two different views of God in the world, two different theistic views of God. One perspective is that God stands at the finish line of our lives. He stands there ready to assess how we did, how we stack up, how faithful we were. Did we make our life count for anything? And according to how we live, he distributes those rewards fairly. That God there is judge. And I want you to know that there is certainly that language in the Bible, but it alone falls short. And for most other religions that I'm aware of, that is the perspective, the theistic perspective on how life ends. God sits there at the finish line, and he gives to you according to what your life has earned. The other view, the more fundamentally Christian view, is that God himself is the finish line. That in the end, God will not be so much to you as the dispenser of rewards. He will be to you the reward itself. He will be the satisfaction of the longing that you have sought in every other quest, in every other romance, in every other aspiration. In the end, God will be not so much a judge to you, but he will be a husband. Many centuries ago, um, Augustine wrote a sermon entitled, On the Pure Love of God. And if you're taking notes, I want you to look up now because this is important. <laughs> um, in this sermon, he imagines God coming to you with a question. He says, suppose God offers you a deal. And the deal goes like this. I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forbidden. You will never die. You will never have pain. You will never have anything that you do not want, and you will always have everything that you do want except for this caveat, this one thing. You will never see my face. Would you take the deal? Would you give up the world? Would you give up all possible worlds, all imagined and desired worlds, just to have him? And then Augustine asks this question. He says, does a chill, did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? And he says that chill is the most precious thing that you have because that chill is the true north that directs you to your true purpose your true home, to intimate union with the God who made you and loves you. Better than all possible worlds, better than all possible powers is the promise of having God himself. That is the story that the Bible is telling. As we close this morning, I, I just want you to note the roles in the final vision. Do you see that in the final vision, uh, the roles for at least this Bible study are, are deeply reversed? that you are not the groom, 
right, as you're accustomed to being. And so what does that mean? Well, it means you are not the one doing the seeking. You are not the one doing the wooing, the pursuing, the rescuing. You and I are the bride. We are, in fact, the ones being sought. We are the ones being wooed, the ones being pursued this morning, the ones being rescued. And let me tell you, that is good news for you men where you sit. For those of you who maybe did not get the chill that Augustine's illustration elicited. Because what that fact implies is that even though you might be a reluctant recipient of God's pursuit, that Jesus Christ himself is never a reluctant suitor when it comes to you. That Jesus took the entire journey, right? He went from a throne to a tomb. He went from heaven to hell to bring you into this feast. And I've said it before, I believe it to be true, I think it's something you can hold on to, that it is almost impossible, it is so difficult to change what you love, to conjure a chill that you don't have. But you can be changed by what loves you. You can be changed where you sit by how that love gets played out in your life. In fact, I would say it is the only way that any of us are ever really changed. We are, we are changed deeply in the deepest parts of who we are by receiving what has been granted to us, as John writes in verse 8. What has been granted to us to wear by sheer mercy. And that is the love of Jesus Christ, not while we loved him, but while we were yet sinners. It is a groom who is forever at work to celebrate and to rejoice over you as the source of his delight. And John had it right before. He said, we love. We love him. But if we do, it is only because he first loved us. And that is the party to which your journey celebrates and points. God is shaping you. He is shaping you. In the ins and outs, the, the peaks and valleys of your life, he is shaping you to want him above all else. And to see in him, not in his rewards, but in him, the cause for a celebration that will never have an end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, your word to us this morning. We thank you for John's vision. Lord, we thank you that, um, that the gospel promises us and it gives to us a Savior and a Lord who loves us more than we could ever love him back. And we pray that out of his love for us, O oh God, that you would change us in the deepest parts of who we are. We do pray that. We ask, Father, that um, if we are reluctant, um, r- reluctant men who are pursued, we pray, God, um, that, the, that the, um, the real pursuit of Jesus Christ, the deep love of Jesus Christ for us, um, would melt away our reluctance, O oh God. Um, we pray that you would clothe us, um, that you would change us, you would sanctify us, Father. Make us the men that you've created us to be. In Christ's name, amen.